Well, we're continuing our, our conversation today, and I'm grateful for the feedback that we've received so far about the conversations that you all are having about work, and uh, really think this matters, this conversation about how we apply our commitment to Jesus in the workplace, to whatever it is that God has called us to do with our lives, our calling. So I want to pray as we begin this morning, and then we'll open uh, Scripture together. God, we, we invite you into this space and into this time. We've sung already about the victor- victory that has been won through the scars of Jesus, that he's our cornerstone, and that we find our identity and our worth and our value in Jesus. God, help us to recenter that identity today as we have a conversation about uh, our identity and what, how work, what it has to do with that. We thank you for the work you've given us to do, that you see us as co-partners in your uh, healing of the world, God. And I pray that today we can find our place and encouragement to walk out to do and, and to be more what you call us to be. I thank you for each one in this room, the many uh, great gifts and abilities and work you've given us to do. And I pray we can do that uh, as followers of Jesus in unique ways this week. This morning, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The last two weeks, we spent a lot of time in Genesis 1 and 2, and we've talked about the first two commands that God gives humans. First command is, I want you to be fruitful and to multiply. The second command is, I want you to rule over the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over the birds in the air, the fish in the sea, and all the animals that move along the ground. What's interesting, though, is we come to chapter 3, and those two commands become more frustrating, more difficult to achieve. Because the curses, the consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve eating the fruit, is two things that tie directly to those commands, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Well, now childbearing is a more painful event than it was before. I don't know what it was like before, but some of you can attest to that, right? The second command becomes more frustrating because now the work of the ground, that that ground is cursed, and now the work is more difficult with thorns and thistles that emerge. But I was was, was thinking about this conversation today I want to have with you about our identity and where we find our worth and value and how work applies to that. I got to thinking about how when we introduce ourselves to someone new, how there are usually a couple of questions that come to the forefront in those conversations. Maybe somebody we haven't seen in a while as we're catching up on life often will ask, Tell me about your family. Tell me how things are going with your kids. That's tied directly to that command about be fruitful and multiply. A lot of us find our value there in relationships. But there's another question that probably is the initial first question we tend to ask people when we're first meeting them. We'll ask them the question, what do you do? And we know what that's code for, right? What do you do means what, what kind of work, what job do you have? It tells us something about us, and we find our identity there. In fact, one of the hardest questions that we have to answer in our world is that question when we aren't sure what our work is, when we're between jobs or we've been let go. That's one of the most difficult and challenging times you've ever been in that place to answer that question. It's one you you dread and you almost want to stay away from. Because somehow this idea of work, it ties directly to our value. It ties to our security, especially in this world we live in. If we really don't have work, then who are we really, we may ask. And whether this question is easy for you to answer in this season or it's a difficult season to answer that question. I want to talk this morning about our identity and our work. Um, It's healthy to find satisfaction and to do good work. But sometimes we can over-identify with our work and it can become something that God didn't intend for it to be. When God is not the primary place, for instance, that Adam and Eve find their value, they tend to go to two areas and find too much of their value there in relationships and in, in their work. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. 
fact, there's this guy in, in the Old Testament. He's the son of King David. His name's Solomon. And Solomon, it, it, a lot of books are attributed to him in the Old Testament. One of those books is the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, if you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I want to read a few verses there. Open your phones if you want. We'll have the words on the screen as well. Uh, but Solomon is somebody who is, is the wealthiest man in the world at the time. He's, he's also the wisest man. God had given this, him this gift of wisdom. And he's ruling over Israel at a time where things are pretty good in Israel's history. And, and, and Ecclesiastes is like a memoir of Solomon's, right? He's reflecting back on his life and talking about all these different pursuits that he tried to find his identity and his value in. So he talks about uh, a pleasure, how he had sought all these great things. He had sought out to build all these wonderful works. And he accomplished a lot. He pursued uh, pleasure through sexual fulfillment as a way of trying to find meaning in life. And then he talks about trying to find meaning in work. And that's what chapter 2 reflects on. So I want to read these words from Ecclesiastes 2, 17 and 23. Just may describe some of your situation, uh, perhaps some of us today. Solomon writes, so I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun. Because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who's not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days Their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. Solomon's reflecting. I don't know if he's passing off the kingdom or that's about to happen, but he's reflecting on the fact that he's done really well with Israel. He's built all and amassed this wealth, but then he realizes, one day I'm not going to be here, and this kingdom's going to have to go on after me, and all the resources I've gotten, I'm going to have to leave them to my children and if, if you know anything about David's family, not all those kids turned out all that good, right? There's some mess in that family. I assume with Solomon as well, with all the women in his life. So there's all these kids around. I'm sure he's thinking, oh, which kid do I pass all this wealth to? This is not going to go well. In fact, this is a challenge for, for families of means, isn't it? Because often these kids don't, don't grow up working to develop what's been developed. And they get passed off this fortune. They're not quite sure what to do with that. You see a lot of mess happens in families in this kind of situation. And so Solomon's reflecting on all that. And and, and when I got to thinking about Solomon, I got to thinking about all of us, right? We try to find meaning in different things as well. And, and often it's frustrating, our pursuits. As children, we learn to find our self-worth and value in, in different pursuits and in different ways. Some of us find our identity in relationships. Maybe you're the, we're always the life of the party and you, you knew how to, how to mix it up in a, in a group. And, and, and people just have always liked you. Maybe that's how you found your, your worth is that you were always the, the class clown or humor was, came easy. I don't know what it was, but some of us relationships is the way that happens. For others of us, we, we learn skills maybe that, that have given us value. People see the value that's there. They encourage us by those things. And there's all kinds of ways that we pursue meaning and value in our lives. Just reflecting on my own story, I wanted to share a little of that today with you. I I've, uh, found my value early on in life through uh, trying to do the right thing. I was a preacher's kid, and so I felt an immense amount of pressure as a a firstborn as well to try to do the right thing, to, to have success in everything I tried, to do everything as hard as I could. So I succeeded in my athletic pursuits, and people gave me encouragement there. So I learned that 
if I just kept doing that, that I'm, I'd get pats on the back. I succeeded in academic pursuits, and people gave me encouragement in school. And then I preached my first sermon, and well, there's nothing more encouraging than preaching your first sermon, no matter how bad it is, right? Because we want to encourage you that maybe this is something you should pursue. And, and so it was through that that I found an encouragement. I found a sense of worth and, and value. So I subconsciously, as I was thinking back this week, I was thinking about it. It was like I was carrying a bucket around with me, an empty bucket. I didn't know this at the time, but I would just kind of carry it around, and I would try, and I would try to do the right thing. And every word of encouragement, every pat on the back, every attaboy was a way of filling that bucket. And that worked well until it didn't work. Because at 24 years old, I became a preacher at a church in Denver. And so I just kind of carried that bucket with me into that first work. And, and so I, that first year, people were very encouraging. You know how it is. You want to encourage the young preacher boy. You don't want to re- be the reason that he decides not to go into ministry or to keep the calling right. And so a lot of encouragement came. But by year two, three, four, and I began saying some things that, about God that may have challenged some of their perspectives. Or maybe I preached a prophetic message that was a, not exactly the way they saw the world. And all of a sudden, those encouragements began to go away a little bit. And, and I realized in the midst of that, I didn't realize at all, it's more in reflection than I've realized, that I, I was coming in with an empty bucket to pick up all these encouragements on Sunday morning, subconsciously. And, and when they dried up, my bucket had dried up. And around that time, I, I got to spend some time with a mentor who was a preacher a little bit ahead of me. And he said some words that really struck me at the time that I think may speak to some of you today I want to share with you. I remember him opening up to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And he talked about these commands I've been sharing with you, right? Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and rule over it. But he said, notice how that verse starts. God starts by blessing humans. He blesses humans before he ever gives a command to any one of us. Because I think that's really important for you to get. Is looks like what you're doing. He was sharing his own story was the same. He said, I remember being a young preacher and trying to get those encouragements and trying to fill my bucket. Uh, but it didn't always come. And I realized that, uh, the, the blessing of God is not something that I have to seek. It's not something that I have to attain. It's not a bucket I have to fill on my own. The blessing of God is already yours before you even speak a word or preach a sermon or do anything to counsel others. And it was a revolutionary statement in my life at the time because I realized that was what I was doing. I was pursuing something, trying to receive something from people with an empty bucket. I'll tell you, that's one of the most dangerous things is to have a preacher with an empty bucket because he's not going to speak the truth. Because the truth sometimes means that encouragement's not going to come. And, and that it, it's amazing how many preachers have blown up their lives, right? And this isn't just preachers. This is all of us who do all kinds of work. We blow up our lives trying to get the praise of men and women, failing to realize that our identity is already secure before any of that happens. A few months ago, I was talking about the book of Ephesians with you, and, and I, I, I laid out the fact that in the first half of the book of Ephesians, there are literally no commands that Paul gives. First three chapters, no commands. What he does is he roots them in their identity. He says, this is the grace you have received. This is your identity. You're a child of God. There's nothing you need to do in order to attain that. But in the second half of Ephesians, after pouring into them vision about who they are and identity, he lays out 35 different commands. I think the order is really important there, right? It's not here are the commands, and if you can fulfill these commands and become righteous, then I'll give you the identity. You can be a child of God. It's no, no, no. You are a child of God. It's by grace you have been saved. And then he begins to tell them, because of your identity being set, this is how you live as a result of that. The same is true for Jesus in his life. This is in Matthew chapter 3. I want to quickly read just from the, from the baptism story of Jesus. He hadn't even started his ministry yet at this point. 
But listen to verse 17. A voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. See, before ever Jesus ever preached a sermon or healed an individual, before he did anything in his life, the blessing of God was already on him. At baptism, he says, I'm, I'm well pleased with you. And he's not well pleased because he's gotten it all right. He's been perfect up to this point, of course, but it's not because of anything he's done. The blessing is already there. His identity is already secure. And then out of that, Jesus begins to live this incredible ministry with others. And the same is what I want to tell you about your situation right now. Some of you are walking in this morning with a dry, empty bucket. And work may be the way you're trying to fill up that bucket. It may be, uh, it, it may be relationships. It may be your children hoping they'll turn out a certain way so that you can receive what you need. And what I'm here to tell you is your identity is already secure in Jesus Christ. You have been handed a gift. You're created in the image of God. You've been given gifts that some of you haven't even unwrapped yet. But your identity is secure before you ever seek to secure your identity. You've already been given everything that you need for life and for godliness. And it's out of that identity that we work and move following that. And if I had learned that, if I'd known that at 24, well, it would have helped my ministry at the time. And my mentor at the time said to me, he said, ministry always works best when you're working from the blessing of God and not for the blessing of God. That makes sense, that distinction. I think it's really important for us to understand. Because at that time, I was working for God's blessing. I wasn't enough on my own. I thought I needed more to fill this bucket. And I walked in every week, and boy, it's really hard to minister to people when you really need to be filled by them and their encouragement. And there was a transition that happened in my life, year three, year four, year five in ministry, where I began to realize that my job each week is to come in with a full bucket. It's to be so connected to the life of God that, that, that I'm spilling over into you all who are here empty from the week that you've poured out. And hopefully that's what happens with one another is we realize if all of our buckets are full, it's amazing how so much dis- dis- dysfunction in our lives doesn't occur in the same way it would otherwise. Because we're already full, we know who we are, and we work out of that identity. So this morning, I just want to change a couple of those words my mentor said to me several years ago. Maybe this is a word of blessing to you today. Your best work will always come when you're working from the blessing of God and not for the blessing of God. No matter what work you're doing, no matter what your calling is, no matter where you're trying to find your life, you will not do good work if you're trying to somehow uh, receive something from God from the work you're doing. Realizing who you are and what your identity is, that you are enough already before you ever take out to do your first step of blessing others, it will change everything in your life. Because where we receive our identity will determine much when it comes to our work. So this morning, I want to share two messages with you. And it's going to take a little more time than if I was across the table, because if I was across the table, I'd listen to your story if you were wanting to know more about work, and I would share just one of these messages. But the reality is I can't do that with every one of us. And so I'm going to share two messages, and you're going to have to kind of have discernment about which one is meant for you. Don't pick the wrong one, because it probably won't go well, okay? Let's kind of just start there. So two messages. Okay, I'm going to start with the first one. Message one is this. Your work matters much less than you think, than you know. Your work matters far less than you think it matters. You see, some of us have learned to find all of our identity in our work. And if we got laid off tomorrow, we're not quite sure what we would do because so much of our identity is wrapped up in the very thing that we do. The problem is if you make any work the purpose of your life, no matter how good and honorable it is, if it becomes so important in your life, it will turn into an idol. 
I preached several months ago a series about idolatry, and at first I was trying to convince you that idolatry is not just an ancient thing, primitive past, right? But we still get caught up in idols. It was a hard case to make because we tend to think of idols as wooden statues that we bow down and worship. But the point of that series was something far different. That an idol is anything that we replace God with, any created thing that we elevate above God. An idol, idolatry is when we replace God with something else in the center. It's when we turn good things into ultimate things, okay? And the thing is, we, we aren't tempted to worship bad things in our world, are we? The things we're tempted to worship are really, really good things. So the problem is not that we pour our energy and life into good things like our family or our children or our work or many other pursuits like that. The problem becomes when we elevate that to a place it was never intended to go. And all of a sudden, we're serving something else rather than the God who created all things. And so when we get this flipped in our lives, there can be a problem. We are tempted to to worship things we shouldn't. And, and many of us in the modern world, we seek to find our salvation. We find our self-worth and our identity in things that aren't God. That, that was what I was confessing from early on in my ministry. And what the gospel does is it frees us from this burden to find our life somewhere other than in Jesus. It frees us to understand what our identity is. Yes, status is key in our world. We measure ourselves often in our world about by money, right? I mean, you think about this, right? Uh, so many of us compare ourselves against others in our line of work by how much we get paid versus how much they do. And sometimes we don't think our work matters if we don't get paid all that much. We've got the scale flipped in our world. A lot of really important jobs are getting paid way too little. And a lot of jobs that aren't nearly as important get paid a lot. But somehow in our minds, you know, how big the bonus is can make us feel valued. How small it may be one year makes us think that maybe we're not all that worth that much uh, to, to, to the uh, business owner that we work for. I heard a preacher say one time, we live in the land of Ur. This wasn't the biblical city from the ancient times he was talking about. He said, we constantly are comparing ourselves to others. we wanting to be smart, Ur, right? Wanting to be thin, Ur. Wanting to be fast, Ur. Wanting to be strong, Ur. And this leads to so many problems in our lives, this problem of comparison. One Harvard Business School professor interviewed what he called 500 high Uh, need for achievement professionals. Some of you may fit in a category like this. These are people who are on the top of the world, on the top of their career platform. And all of these people were talking about how they questioned their own success. And many of them brought up at least one other peer that seemed to be getting ahead or on a faster track than they were. And I heard the other day, in fact, that nine out of 10 office uh, workers suffer from professional envy, where they look at at least one other person in the office and wonder why that person's more talented or somehow has a faster track to the top. The story was told really well, I thought, and illustrated by a, a play by Peter Schaefer called Amadeus. Maybe some of you have seen the movie about Mozart, Salieri. Court musician Antonio Salieri, the story's told, loves to make music and was great at it. But good, good wasn't good enough for him. Because in his era, the one that was the greatest was Mozart. Salieri was a great musician. He was gifted by God in so many ways, but when he finally realized that he would never be able to live up and, 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 and perform at the level that Mozart was able to, to compose to the same degree, he titled himself the Prince of Mediocrity. What an interesting thing to say for one of the most talented musicians of the time. Our generations, we talk a lot about changing the world. There's more books about changing the world now than ever in human history. We talk about it all the time. We, we coin the phrase, but behind this language is more than just about changing the world. Much of the time, it's because we're terrified of the concern we might just be ordinary people 
who aren't remembered after a generation or two. To be clear, I don't think this desire to change the world is about selfishness or about entitlement. Most of us aren't lazy people, talented, we're passionate about what we do. The problem becomes when we see our work as more than just a job, it becomes seeking our own redemption. Like finding our own salvation. Because what we need most is the praise that's around us. A couple years ago at the Golden Globe uh, Awards, Jim Carrey got up after winning the year before. He was introducing one of the awards. I thought he spoke to this pretty well. Let's, let's watch this clip. Comedians are our truth tellers, right? They're prophets in our modern world. And what Carrey's getting at is exactly right, isn't it? Because it's always just one more, isn't it? We're hitting that next step. But what we find every time we hit the standards we'd set out for ourselves is it's never enough. It just keeps going. And then like Solomon says, you've got to hand it off to that idiot of a son or daughter that you know, gets it from you, right? Some of you are passing off businesses right now thinking about, how am I going to do this? So maybe we need to take our work a little less seriously. Or maybe like Jim Carrey, we need to take ourselves a little less seriously. And so to some of you, what I would want to say if I was across the table from you is, your work matters far less than you think it does. But message number two for others of you that, that might not apply. Your work matters far more than you know. It matters far more than you think it does. And how do I know that? Well, the kingdom of God shows up in surprising ways if you pay attention, right? Jesus tells stories about mustard seeds and yeast worked into dough. Jesus shows up on the scene in this kind of backwards community. What good can come from Nazareth, right? That's where he shows up later. He shows up in Bethlehem in a manger. He's on the run as a refugee in Egypt. I mean, it's a rough start for the savior of the world. He shows up in these subtle, quiet ways. And that's the way the kingdom works, right? These subtle, quiet, subversive corners of the world. That's how God shows up. And and some of you think that your work doesn't matter right now. And I want to challenge that. I've been challenging it through the whole series and I'll continue to do that. I'm thinking about the plumber, maybe, who's questioning how your work might matter to the kingdom of God. And I got to tell you, when the pipe bursts at 2.30 in the morning, you matter deeply. I don't know what to do. But you've been training all your lives for that moment so that you can provide your craft to those who need it most. You're forgotten if you fix it right long after that, right? It's just somebody who came and helped, but you provided your specialization in a time of need. That small gift matters deeply in the moment you need it most. I'm thinking about the CPA who may be thinking, what does my life really matter? But for any of you who try to do your taxes on your own, you know the gift that is, right? As you finally maybe earn enough to be able to set aside a little bit for the CPA to work out those taxes, you know the gift that specialization is so that you don't have to worry about the errors that might be there. Provide them what's needed and they'll do the work for you. You remember the job that the Apostle Paul had? We talked about this a couple times. I'd like to go to Acts 18, verses 1 through 4. Paul has left Athens and he's gone to Corinth. He's this apostle who's sharing the message of Jesus, probably the most important missionary in, the, in history, right? Writes half our New Testament. Listen to what it says here in Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
Paul was a tent maker who used his extra hours outside of his main work to do the work of the kingdom. And we tend to think that his most important work was the gospel that he promoted, that he passed off as he went around the world and did his great work. But I'll tell you what, there are people who were sleeping in shelters, tents that were made by Paul, who would say the most important work Paul ever gave me was just a roof over my head. Because that work matters. And just because you do that work doesn't mean the kingdom can't be advanced in remarkable ways, right? Outside of your 40, 60 hour a week job. I think about that because we tend to think about Paul as the apostle, but Paul worked with his hands and that work with his hands mattered deeply. And so I'm thinking about the work that you do with your hands or in this soft internet age, right? It may not be with your hands, but the important work you do. What you do is a grace. It's a gift that you lend someone your expertise in the moment they maybe need you most or in the moment they may not even know they need your help most. So if you have clients and your work touches people, your work matters deeply. If, if you work with colleagues, there are people created in the image of God, even in the moments they may not seem like it. You're called to them as well. If the kingdom of God is like yeast worked in a dough, if it's like this mustard seed that dies in the ground and looks like nothing's happening, but it then springs forth to new life, who knows what seeds you're planting now that may matter into eternity? Because if God chose to enter into the world and a baby born in the midst of the messiest time and in that little town of Bethlehem, I have to wonder what he might be up to in this time as well. So to some of you, if I were across the table, what I would say is, yeah, but if you have eyes to see, your work matters so much more than you can imagine. Part of the conversation in our groups this week is to help discern and figure out which of those messages is most needed in your life. Hope you'll engage that conversation later with your group. Is it the message that really work needs to mean less to me than it does because I found too much of my identity there? Or is it maybe that work needs to matter more? I need to have better eyes to see all that God is doing, which leads me to one more passage that I want to share with you right now. It's Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles with you. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. I want to read these words that Paul writes. Again, the first half of the book is all identity. The second half is all commands that come. But listen to this this word that many of you probably memorized. Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So verses 8 and 9, right? Just think for a moment about what he says. This is by grace you have been saved. Your identity is secure because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's enough. But then he comes in verse 10 and he says more, right? right now that we've settled your identity, now that you know that the grace of God is, has encapsulated your life and your eternity is sure and your identity is secure, guess what? There have been works that have been prepared in advance for you to do in Christ Jesus. That's where the series title came from, Good Work, right? This idea of good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. All of us are called by God out of the grace that he has given to us to give our lives to the good works of his kingdom. And I love this phrase that I want to close with today. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork. Other translations say God's masterpiece. It says God's workmanship. I, I like God's handiwork. But the actual Greek word here, it's translated as handiwork or masterpiece. It's the word poema. 
This idea of poetry, of what a poem, right? God says, when you do your good works, the good workmanship you are that I've created you to be, you're like my poem in the world. I like that. So a lot of us are about menial tasks, and we think that the work doesn't matter, or God doesn't see us, or it's too small for anyone to see. But in the midst of that, no matter what message may be being shared with you, or you've begun to believe about yourself that the work you do doesn't matter, what God sees is your, your handiwork. Here's masterpiece. You've been designed in a certain way for the task that you've been called to do. And it may look different a decade from now what it does today, but if you can understand that, doesn't it reshape everything about the calling that God's given you? About the people that you encounter who are also God's handiwork? About the abilities you've been given? So maybe that's a word for you to take with you this week. Maybe Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 needs, needs to be that kind of phrase on your lips as you're kind of going about the monotony of work, right? Why does this matter? Hey, you are God's poem. You're not slaves to a boss. You're not people who are just making a dime, just trying to hustle to get by. No, no, no. You are God's handiwork. You are his poem in the midst of a world that needs more poetry. So I hope this would change the way you see your work. I hope you'll enter in this week and whatever it is that God has called you to do, whether it's your full-time job or it's like Paul, the stuff of apostleship you do on the side, enter into that work and see all that God is doing in and through you. You are not trying to secure any blessing. It's already yours. So your work matters far less than you think it does. At the same time, you're God's poem, which means it matters far more than you think it does. Let's close with prayer this morning. Oh God, help us to see what you see and as you see. Thank you for the gifts and the spirit that you've given to us. Thank you for the ways that you have gifted each one in this room. I think about all the industry that takes place as a result of the people here, the imagination that you've given. I think about all the different ways that you you work in us and through us. And sometimes it's hard to see, God, how any of what we do can make a difference. Maybe, maybe we've sit buried a seed in the ground and are trusting that new life will come forth. But God, we want to trust what you say. That we are your handiwork. We are your masterpiece. And you prepare in advance for us good works to do. So God, we speak your poem today. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.